My name's Sarah, and I'm going to be uh, reading the Bible for us this morning, but please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his willingness to go to the cross, to endure scorn and ridicule, injustice and punishment. Thank you that he did that for our sake, that we might find freedom and grace. Help us today as we hear your word and as we reflect on Jesus' death. Give us understanding. Convict us of our sin where we need it. And grow our gratitude and appreciation of what you have done for us in Christ. Enable us to see the cross more clearly and to respond rightly. Amen. We're reading uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 49. Uh, which is an account of what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. Uh, We're picking it up at a point where Jesus has already been arrested uh, and has faced trial under the Jewish authorities, uh, and he's being taken now off to Pilate. Luke chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, They'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. 
Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. 
So if you don't know me, I'm Roy. I work here at church along with Matt and Mitch and Steph. And if you know Matt and I at all, you probably will have noticed that we're very different. But we, we recently discovered a shared interest. We discovered that we are both quite partial to a good Jason Statham movie. Now, some of the less cultured among you may be of the opinion that Jason's movies are predictable and they always end the same. But steady on, couldn't we accuse the gospel writers of the same thing? Isn't chapter 23 of Luke the same tired old Easter story we've all heard before? Well, yes and no. Because like a quality Jason Statham movie can only be appreciated for the masterpiece that it is if you watch attentively and pick up on all the ways that it's different from his other movies, so too, bear with me, so too Luke's account of the crucifixion is able to be appreciated and understood best if you pay attention to its unique distinctives. So what I want us to notice this Good Friday is the unique way that Luke structures his account of the crucifixion. Luke repeatedly layers two elements of gospel truth, one on top of the other, as he draws attention to the things that he wants to emphasize. Now, I've never baked a cake in my life, but I have eaten many a cake, and I noticed that a good cake consists of multiple layers which kind of contrast and complement each other. And the reason that bakers do this is because the contrast between the layers, it draws the attention of the palate to the different tastes and textures. As you bite into a classic chocolate cake, the rich chocolatey flavour of the base is interrupted by the sweet vanilla icing. The clean, smooth icing cuts through the deep, intense richness of the chocolate so you can appreciate the flavour of each layer more than if you kind of deconstructed it and ate each part separately. And what we're going to see today is the two layers Luke uses to structure his account of the crucifixion of Jesus. These two layers weave together, drawing attention to one another like the layers of a carefully constructed cake. So we've got two points today, but they kind of alternate back and forth. Our two points, or layers, are one, the sin of mankind, and two, the innocence of Jesus. So our first layer, the base, if you will, is the sin of those who accuse Jesus. Verse 2, they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposed payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, this first layer is thick and dark, not with delicious chocolate, but with the darkness of lies. In this first layer, the accusers combine outright lie with truth and half-truth, making it a corrupt and confounding base of slander. 
Here, Jesus is effectively accused of challenging the power of Rome despite never having made any kind of grab for worldly power in his life. The next layer, which contrasts the darkness of these lies, is the announcement of the innocence of Jesus by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. Verse 4, Pilate announces, I find no basis for the charge against this man. So there's our second point, our second layer, the innocence of Jesus. Now, despite this not guilty verdict, the ugly spectre of human sin rears its head again in the next layer. In verse 5, the people reject the verdict of Pilate and double down on their lies against Jesus. Pilate then sends Jesus to a lesser court where he is questioned and not charged, but instead in verse 11 he is ridiculed and mocked. In our next layer, Jesus is back in front of Pilate again and is announced for the second time to be innocent. Verse 14, I have found no basis for your charges against him. But of course, swiftly following the announcement of the innocence of Jesus, the sin of humanity is layered again on top. The whole crowd refuses to accept the not guilty verdict and shout out in verse 21, crucify him, crucify him. On top of these murderous cries, the innocence of Jesus is immediately layered yet again, where in verse 22, for the third time, Jesus is pronounced not guilty. Now, the layer Luke records next is a double-rich, chunky boy of human depravity, beginning with the loud shouts of verse 23, insisting this clearly innocent man be crucified, followed by Pilate caving to their demands in verse 24, allowing Jesus to be crucified in verse 33. But as expected, the innocence of Jesus is on view again in Luke's next layer, where the criminal crucified next to Jesus echoes Pilate's not guilty verdict. Verse 41, he says, this man has done nothing wrong. Our last layer of the darkness of sin is a doozy, for it's a literal three-hour period of darkness that comes in verse 44. The darkness signifies that the innocent light of the world, the Son of God, is about to have his life snuffed out despite having never committed a sin, despite having lived his whole life in perfect obedience to the Father, Jesus dies the death of a condemned man in verse 46. And finally, our last layer, which I'm sure you're, you're glad of, because even I'm sick of the layers. Uh, the last announcement of the innocence of Jesus comes from a Roman centurion looking on. He comes to the same conclusion as Pilate and the criminal. Verse 47, the centurion says, Surely this was a righteous man. Surely, this man was innocent. So, through this layering technique, Luke draws our eye on the one hand to the innocence of Jesus and on the other hand to the sin of humanity. Now, both of these truths have been on view throughout Luke's Gospel, but here in chapter 23, they reach their climax 
as the sinless Son of God, is subject to the darkness of the sin of mankind. And Luke has good reason for highlighting these two truths because they are core, critical aspects of the gospel. To be a Christian, you need to see them clearly and buy into them. Because if you see Jesus as just another good man, rather than as the perfect spotless lamb without blemish or fault, well then you are not seeing him as he really is. So too, if you see humanity as just like a bit wonky and busted, rather than as totally corrupt and sinful, well then you will never despair of your ability to make yourself righteous and come to Christ to receive his righteousness. And this latter point is what I want to push on today. Because I think more than anything, the obstacle which stops people from coming to God is our unwillingness to stare our sin in the face and call it for what it is. So we're going to focus in on three little words in verse 33. Because in the end, the depth of the sin of humanity is revealed most clearly in those three words. The middle of verse 33. They crucified him. They crucified him. After the lies, the mocking, the abuse, the ridicule, the screams of the crowd, after all this, the moment comes, the climax of chapter 23 of Luke. And it's just so casual, isn't it? So nonchalant and matter-of-fact. Just three little words, they crucified him. Luke doesn't bother to explain what this involves. He doesn't provide details of the horror or the fear. He doesn't explain how the victim was mercilessly held down, nails driven through him before being hoisted aloft, gasping for air as each movement of the beam carried shockwaves of breathtaking pain through the extremities. Luke doesn't explain that this process was deliberately designed to bring prolonged, excruciating torment to those who suffered it. He doesn't explain that crucifixion is death by torture. Luke simply takes for granted that we understand what this involves. He takes for granted that we know that this is the kind of thing we humans do to one another. We are the kind of creatures which have not just the capacity, but also the desire to conceive of a method of ending someone's life, which is the very definition of cruel and unusual. A method which under normal circumstances meant hours or even days of being held aloft naked on a cross, secured only by nails driven through flesh, shoulders dislocated, gasping for air, with no hope of mercy. When you pause a while and ponder the reality of the cross, you cannot help but be struck by the sin of mankind. You cannot help but be struck by how bent and twisted we must collectively be 
to ever even conceive of inventing this method of execution, let alone that we did it to the one person in the history of the world that was truly, completely righteous and innocent. The very fact that the human race ever crucified a single person should be enough to make us weep and cry out to God for mercy. The bare fact that we are capable of this is an indictment against our very nature at the deepest level. And so in the end, Luke is in no need of convincing us that we are sinners. Those three little words, they crucified him. They bear ample witness to our collective guilt. Now the objection may rise up in you that you are not responsible for the sin of others. And that's true as far as it goes. But to anyone with that objection, I want to say as politely as I can, I just think you need to get real. You need to take a look within and discover what is there. Because what you will find in the cold light of day is a laundry list of lusts, a wealth of wrongs and a catalogue of crimes of which you are guilty. Sure, the crucifixion of Jesus may not be one of them, but there is plenty for which your conscience should accuse you. Besides, it's not all about you anyway. We modern people have become so individualistic. We've come to feel as if both our virtues and our vices are ours and ours alone, disconnected from those who came before us and detached from our shared human nature. We tend to think that our sins, if we admit them, are our responsibility alone. And so the sins of Pilate, of the soldiers and of the crowd will have nothing to do with us. But that's not what the human race is. We are not a bunch of isolated, disconnected points which don't intersect. We are more like a web connected at every point. We are like leaves on a tree which grow up out of the root of a shared, corrupt nature. So when we see a world where people use their God-given creativity to concoct evil ways to hurt one another, we should think, I'm part of this. Sin is a part of me. And when we see the innocent Son of God mocked, abused and tortured to death by our kinsfolk, we should think, I'm connected to that. I'm responsible for that. I share the same evil nature as those, as those people who did that. We should stare the plain reality in the face and realise, yes, I am like those men who crucified Jesus. I am like the crowds which called to see a man die in this abhorrent way. I am like Pilate who handed an innocent man over to death. Yes, 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 that is me. That is the kind of creature I am. How deep the darkness within me. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the place of recognition we must come to if we are to understand Easter. 
That is what we should think of as we see Christ suffering the penalty for sin on the cross. And if we are assured that Jesus was innocent three times by Pilate, again by the man dying next to him, and again by the centurion looking on, if we are assured that in Jesus there is no sin, well, it takes no great effort of the intellect to grasp that what nails him to the cross is our sin. Jesus died because of our sin against him. And there it is. Not in so many words, but in the whole scheme of his storytelling. Luke's theology of the cross. Luke's emphasis and plea to us, sinners entrenched and entangled in a bloodthirsty, sinful human nature to behold the sinless Saviour on the cross and see that He is our way out. He is our way to forgiveness for sin. That the innocent Christ took our sin upon Himself and died for it. And that is what Good Friday is all about. It is about forgiveness for sinful people like you and I, for all kinds of of people guilty of all kinds of sins, Luke's gospel shows forth the one and only chance for our wretched race that there is hope for us. Because 2,000 Easter's ago, the innocent Son of God was nailed to a cross in our place. Amen. <laughs>